Good morning. The reading is taken from Genesis chapter 13 and can be found on page 14 of the Church Bibles. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great they were not able to stay together, and quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarrelling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of Jordan towards Zor was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offsprings forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. Thank you, Sue. It would be great if you could keep your pew Bibles open, or indeed open them if they're not yet open, at page 14 uh, and Genesis chapter 13. But as we start, I want to ask you a question. How, how do you make decisions? How do you make choices? So, so, sometimes they're, they're simple, silly things, aren't they? Like if someone asks you, what's your favourite film? I hate that question. What's your favourite film? 
Because you have to kind of make a choice between all the films that you've ever seen and pick one. What's your favourite film? What's your favourite book? It feels to me almost as though those questions are a bit of a... um, a bit of a test, like a kind of psychological examination of you. Like the person who asks a question like that has got a little kind of chart uh, and, uh, and you give your answer and they sort of tick you off and they say, well, people who answer that are like this. And this is what's really going on deep down inside them. I, perhaps I'm revealing too much of myself in telling you how little of myself I want to reveal in, in, in answering questions like that. But my favourite book, that's quite an easy one for me. And... Um, <laughs> My favourite books, I've just seen my daughter cover her eyes. Uh, My favourite book, our family's favourite book, in one sense at least, is You Choose by Pippa Goodhart and Nick Sharrett. Uh, Nick lives uh, somewhere nearby, I think. Uh, He's a great illustrator of children's books. And the, the wonder of You Choose is that on every page, there are all these wonderful things for you to choose between. And the subtitle of the book is a different story every time. Uh, And so you can read this book with your kids as they're growing up, uh, and as you can see, they never grow out of it. Uh, And uh, and you can go through and you can decide what kind of mode of transport do you want to take? Where do you want to live? What kind of house do you want to live in? What will you wear? What kind of furniture will you have? Uh, And it's great, and you can kind of explore it together, and it's 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 a beautiful experience. It's lovely. You choose. But you see, when you're a child, and with a book like that, when you choose, you can always go back and choose again another time. There's no real loss involved in it. It's easy, and it's fun to read You Choose together. But when I was at school, we had a whole school poetry recitation competition and each year group had to learn a particular poem uh, and one year uh, we uh, I think probably I was in the in the fifth form we had to learn a poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken and the way the poem begins kind of explains what the whole poem is about really two roads diverged in a yellow wood and sorry that I could not travel both and be one traveller Long I stood. I could not travel both and be one traveller. When you make a choice, when you make a decision, there's loss involved, isn't there? You're always choosing one thing, but either deliberately or without really thinking about it, choosing against something else. So, I imagine one of the choices that's faced lots of us this week is whether to drop everything and get to London to go and see the Queen lying in state. And the kind of things that have run around in our head, the the choices between being part of this enormous cultural moment, somehow experiencing the reality of, of what's happening in our nation for yourself, but also sharing with others in this extraordinary moment. That's the thing, if you go, you're choosing that that positively, uh, and you're choosing to give up, I don't know, a night's sleep, uh, a day at the office, all kinds of things. When you make a decision, you gain and you lose. Inevitably. 
And the decision not to go is a decision to lose, to miss out on all those things that the crowds, the queue even, are experiencing and will probably remember and talk about for the rest of their lives. So how do you make a decision? In the end, it comes down to knowing what matters most to you. It comes down to the vision of your heart. It comes down to what your life is about, the story that you want your life to tell. In the big things and in the small things, that motivation underlies everything. Who am I? What does my life mean? Where am I going? What do I want more than anything else? That, I think, is pretty close to the heart of what we're looking at here in Genesis chapter 13. I don't know whether you spotted it, but Abraham and Lot do one thing that's identical in this story. They pitch their tents. Abraham uh, lives in Canaan. Lot pitches his tents on the cities of the, near the cities of the plain, verse 12, if you see it there with me. And then in verse 18, Abraham pitches his tents near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron. They both, both choose a place, almost as if You know, there we are, uh, reading you choose. Where do you want to live? Lot says here, Abraham says here. But there's lots more going on than just the decision about where to put the poles and the stakes of your tent in this story. Just to set the scene, if you were here last week, you'll remember we were in uh, chapter 12 uh, and seeing this enormous vision that God presents before Abraham. God appears to Abraham, God speaks to Abraham and he says to him, go, leave everything behind and go to this land that I will show you. I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to bless you and actually through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so Abraham sets off on this great journey to the place that we would now call the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that what I was suggesting was that in that promise, God is actually offering to turn the world back the right way up again, to mend what is broken. As Samwise Gamgee put it in The Lord of the Rings, to make every sad thing come untrue to restore Eden, to restore humanity to a relationship with the God who made them for himself and to restore them to each other in blessing rather than in chaos and conflict. So we're picking up the story of Abraham living within that promise, of God beginning to fulfill that promise to him. We've skipped over uh, a few verses in which Abraham and Lot and Abraham's wife Sarai have gone down uh, to Egypt and it's uh, been an interesting story in Egypt. There's been a mixture of, of kind of blessing and peril. Abraham nearly lost his wife Sarai to, to Pharaoh. But they've come up out of Egypt. They've been enriched. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're wealthier than they could ever have imagined before. And they come back to uh, the very spot in the promised land from which they left because of famine to go to Egypt, to the Negev. Uh, and then from there, 
in what must have been this kind of great party of people, this, these huge sort of flocks of animals following them. They come back to a place that we've been to already, Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier, where he'd first built an altar. Now, there's something to, to notice there. When this happens, Bethel doesn't actually really exist. Uh, Bethel uh, is a place that is sort of built around uh, something that will happen to Abraham's grandson. But the name of it's really important. Bethel in Hebrew literally just means the house of God. Okay, so we're, we're, we're being told that Abraham's come back to this place that's going to be of enormous significance in the future. You see, this, this book is not written by Abraham or uh, by Isaac, his son, or by Jacob, his grandson. It's written, well, people have always believed it was written by Moses. And so the, the readers, the, the hearers uh, of this story, when it's first told in this form, will know exactly where Bethel is. And they'll know about AIT, but we won't talk about that today. But they know Bethel. And so they'll know what kind of place it was too. I don't know how your Near Eastern geography is. Mine's not great, but I've had a bit of a look on a map and I've done a bit of reading about it in preparation. And actually the spot that they're at is a little bit like the Devil's Dyke. That's a photograph I took on Thursday evening when Sam and I took a walk. And up there on the top, you can look out and you can see... Well, I suppose that's West Sussex, isn't it? Spread out before you. Uh, and uh, this place where Abraham and Lot stop is, is a spot like that. It's a breathtaking vantage point. One of the highest points in the land. Uh, and from it you can see everything. So the moment of crisis arrives, uh, Lot and Abraham, uh, the, the land that they're in can't sustain them. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, these uh, existing peoples are already living in the land. There's, there's just not enough pasture to go round for all their flocks. And the herdsmen are beginning to quarrel. And, uh, and there's this tension building up between Abraham and Lot. And Abraham says, OK, look, we can't stay together here. So go anywhere you want in the land and I'll go the other way. And you see something of Abraham's character in this, his wisdom, his insight, uh, and his kindness. He, he says, but we're, we're close kinsmen, we shouldn't be at each other's throats, so let's go our separate ways for the moment, and let's have peace. But he's generous, he says, Lot, you choose. You choose. Go wherever you like. And so Lot looks around, he, he sees uh, the vista spread out before him. And we join verse 10, let's have a look together. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. The place from which humanity has been exiled, the garden of the Lord, this, this place of blessing and plenty. And there's the, the plain of the Jordan River, green against the sort of brown backdrop, backdrop, well watered, like the garden of the Lord. Remember, we're looking through Lot's eyes here. This is what Lot sees. This is how Lot interprets what he sees. He looks and he thinks, that way I can get back 
to the joy of Eden. And it's at that moment in the text when it's as if in the movie score the sinister sounds begin. Perhaps just a repeating note on the cello suggesting that although it all looks good there is peril. Because look what Moses says next. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Now Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Now Egypt was a place of extraordinary irrigation, of wonderful uh, sort of agriculture based on the, the flooding of the Nile and the ability of the Egyptian people to, to uh, take the water from the Nile and spread it through their fields. Even in the days of the Roman Empire, Egypt was really the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. The port of Alexandria became the most important uh, place in terms of food for, for the whole empire. And Lot sees that it's like Egypt and that attracts him. And so the sinister music begins because Egypt is a place of danger in the life of the people of God. He sees it as being like the land of Egypt. And then almost to explain why it looks so good for the moment, when if you go there now, all you will see is, well, desert really. And the Dead Sea. Moses says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But with the mention of those two great cities that suffered in the end, and you come to us as we read through Genesis, total destruction, the sinister music gets louder and more sinister. And then in verse 11, the crescendo continues. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. So Bethel uh, represents the house of God. Uh, Ai is to the east. So Abraham and Lot are already east of Bethel. And Lot just keeps going away. Heading to the east. And it echoes what happens with Cain who travels east of Eden to the land of Nod. And if you'd ever wondered where the uh, phrase, the land of Nod, came from, there you have it. It's uh, Genesis chapter 5. So Lot, travelling away from Bethel, towards this place that is like Egypt, that is doomed to judgment, goes and pitches his tents near Sodom, and then the crescendo reaches its highest pitch in verse 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. So off Lot goes, and his journey is downhill, away from this beautiful vantage point that he's enjoyed with Abraham. He's heading downhill, and it's like that's a great metaphor for what is actually happening. And as Lot and his caravans disappear into the distance and the dust rises behind them, they head down to what is actually the lowest point 
of land on the planet. And Abraham is up high. Lot is heading for trouble. And as we read on in Genesis, you see just how bad that trouble is going to get. It's going to cost him this decision to pitch his tents near Sodom. is going to cost him his wife. It's going to cost him everything, actually. And he ends up in a real mess. He becomes, his, he becomes the father of his own grandchildren with all that that involves. He is heading for trouble. But as the dust cloud begins to drift on the wind, and as Lot begins to disappear, the music changes abruptly. And God speaks to Abraham again. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are. Again, he's got this whole vista before him. And God says, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. Abraham's intense, lots heading towards a city, but it's Abraham who is experiencing permanence, something that can't be taken away. I will give this to your offspring forever. Uh, and having kind of restated something of the promise that we heard in the previous chapter, God then ratchets it up and says, this is how great this promise is. I will make your offspring. So you imagine the dust cloud passing in the distance. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust, your offspring could be counted. And imagine that. Uh, it's, it's, it's easier to, to visualize it with sand than it is with dust. Because at least sand is kind of countable, whereas dust is so tiny. But if you imagine how many grains of sand there are in a single teaspoon. Just imagine. <laughs> Think how many teaspoons of sand there are in the world. Apparently enough say that the grains of sand are roughly equivalent to the stars in the known universe. God says to Abraham, that uncountable number, that's how great I'm going to make your family. That's what I'm talking about when I say I will make you into a great people. To count your children would require an ability to count the dust of the earth. This is blessing upon blessing. This is outrageous and audacious, the promise that God makes to Abraham. You think I'm going to give you just a bit? No, no, no. The blessing that's going to come through you is going to be unimaginably great. So he says, go, walk through the land, for I'm giving it to you. And just like in chapter 12, God says, go, and then, verse 18, Abraham went. Lot makes a choice, and it's a choice that's going to bring incredible pain. It's really going to bring him destruction. Whereas Abraham receives massive blessing, unimaginable blessing. 
What's the point? Well, the point, I think, is this. Look at how Abraham begins and ends his journeys in this chapter. He pitches his tent twice. The first time at this place between Bethel and Ai, and then the second time in verse 18, near the great trees of Mamre. But what do those places have in common? Just look at the text, just see. They're places of worship. It's no coincidence they go back to that place near Bethel. Because it's where Abraham had built an altar, where he'd called on the name of the Lord. It's the place where he had worshipped. And when he settles, in verse 18, again, he builds an altar. It's a place of worship. It is worship that shapes Abraham's life. The center of the vision of his heart is God. And so his decisions about what he does with his life are based on the significance of that relationship. They're about worship. And everything follows on from that. Whereas by contrast, Lot makes his decisions based on what he can see, what he thinks he can see. You're offering me everything. Well, that looks great. It's outside the land. Abraham says, go anywhere in the land, this place that God has promised. But Lot looks outside the land. The plain of the Jordan is not in the borders of the land that God is promising Abraham. But Lot thinks I can go outside the promise of God and be even more blessed. Because look, it's like Eden. If you want a verse from the Bible to help you remember the lesson that Lot and Abraham are teaching us between them today, well then, it would be one of our family's favourite verses, this, from Proverbs. Now, my problem is that my eyesight is failing so badly that I can't quite read it, and I know that it's different on the screen from what I learnt and memorised. So, forgive me that it will come out slightly differently from my mouth from what you will read. But essentially, this is Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. What is the governing principle of your life? What is the thing that means more to you than anything else? What are you heading towards? Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 tells you, if you head towards God... Everything else eventually falls into place. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. If you go for what you think will satisfy, what you imagine will bring fulfillment, then like Lot, you might find that you come a cropper. Think about it in in practical terms. A, a month ago, uh, I had the privilege of uh, officiating the wedding of, of a godson of mine. And during uh, his father's speech, uh, he talked a bit about uh, the decisions that this young man had made in his life. And he said, 
at the age of 16, he won national youth windsurfing championships. He could have gone on to be a, a champion, to win trophies, to be a professional, doing the thing that he really loved to do. And he said, but training clashed with youth group. So he gave it up. And I have to admit, I sat there at the table hearing that and I thought, goodness, what a decision. Think of everything he missed out on. Possible fame, money, a sense of great achievement, the chance to actually be someone, do something, make your mark on the world. And he gave that up to go to church. And I hadn't thought about it. I thought, goodness me, that 16-year-old boy that made that decision was wiser than me. Because what he chose was to say, what matters more to me than anything else in my life is to build on God. Is to go towards him. Is to make my relationship with him more important than anything else. To trust in the Lord with all my heart, not to lean on my own understanding. And as I sat at my table, sort of thinking, it would be nice to be internationally known for being good at something. I thought, I don't think in a million years anyone's going to care. In a million years, though, that young man will continue to enjoy the glory and the rest of the God who made him, to praise him with every fibre of his being. Hard for me to imagine that that was an unwise choice on his part then. Don't you think? But boy, it must have been hard. Lot would go for the glory, but Abraham went for the Lord. Now, there's just something else about this passage that I think can help us with that. Because you might think, well... Sounds great to have a kind of governing vision of your life like that, to to be so focused on knowing and loving God, of following him, that that it kind of shapes everything else, and you could feel good about making a decision like that to uh, abandon a glorious future. For him, wow, it must be amazing to to be able to trust God like that. But I don't think my heart can do that. I mean, how, how do you come by a glorious vision of God like that? that allows you to put it first before all other things. Well, if you've um, got your Bible, and I'm afraid I don't know what page one, but if you flipped over, in my Bible it's 1041, it'll be similar, I should think, in the P Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12. Having commended Abraham and lots of other kind of heroes and heroines of the faith, the writer to the Hebrews concludes like this in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marks out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, as I say, I think that's the, that's the kind of big point of Genesis chapter 13. But then read how he goes on. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, 
He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In in the accounts of Jesus' life we have in the New Testament, in the Gospels, we're told about Jesus being taken to a place like this, from which he can see all the kingdoms of the earth. And the, the devil says to him, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will give you all of these. The point being that there's an easy way to glory. You don't have to go through the cross. You're not going to have to die and suffer. But Jesus chose the cross. He chose suffering. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy set before him? The joy of sharing eternity with you. So the God who makes these promises is the God who has made the hard choice because he loves you. So you can trust him that he'll keep his promises, not just because he has the power to do it, but because he loves you so much that he cannot but do it. The joy set before Jesus was you, And to get there, he endured crucifixion, scoffing, scorn, unbearable pain and death. The God I ask you to fix your eyes on is the God who loves you like that. That's not such a hard choice, is it?